Isaiah chapter 45, you, there's a Bible on the seat in front of you. There's a uh, Bible in our app. Uh, if you guys would turn to Isaiah 45, while you're doing that, we got a Bible that was left here, Tyler Contreras. It's a children's Bible in the ESV translation. Do you know whose that is? Is it for you guys? Perfect. See how good that worked out? Here you go. That wasn't awkward at all, huh? No. All right, good. That was supernatural. All right, not supernatural. That was... Never mind. All right, so uh, Isaiah chapter 45. We're going to start in verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose white, right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. If you remember where we finished off last week, in, uh, excuse me, two weeks ago, we had Stand Sunday last week, in Isaiah 44, at the end of the passage, God names a man named, a man named Cyrus. Cyrus will become king of Persia, king over the entire Middle Persian Empire about six centuries before Christ. Now, here's what's important about that. First, the context. Israel and Judah, the people of God right now in the Old Testament, they are captive in Babylon. They have been destroyed by the Babylonian Empire, Nebuchadnezzar. You guys are probably most familiar with the story of Daniel, the book of Daniel, as they are taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar, taken into slavery into Babylon. They are kept there. They are exiles out of their homeland. The reason for this is what we've been talking about. God's people have been incredibly disobedient. God, generation after generation for hundreds of years, has called them to repentance, has called his people to return to him. And that's a place where we can plug into the book of Isaiah, is oftentimes we hear the message of God and, and God calling people to repent of sin or repent of things not of God, and we say, you know what, that's for all those people out here, because they're doing, they're doing this, they're doing that, and God doesn't want that, but we miss the idea that it's for us, that God speaks to his people. God calls his people to repent. And then we get to take the gospel to others. And then we get to invite them to know Jesus. And that in Christ, as they take steps of faith, like baptism and discipleship, that they will repent of the sins that God calls them to as his children. The message of Isaiah is much like the message to the church today. It is dependent upon us returning to God, us leaving behind the things of culture, the things that are not of God, us turning from those, turning to God. And when we, the people of God, are obedient and press into him and are loving and caring, we reach out to those around us. That's where they get to see what the life that God has created us for looks like. So all that we say on Sundays, all that we do in here, it reminds us of what we need to do, not just how culture is wrong or how our next door neighbor is sinful, but us. So we must always look at us first. So the people of God are exiled into Babylon, and this is because of God's discipline over them. Here's what you're going to do. Here's what I'm going to do because you have not been obedient. Generation after generation, prophet after prophet have called you to return, and yet you will not. So because of that, I'm going to cause Babylon to conquer you and exile you. And then Isaiah, who writes this book about 200 years before the time that we're reading about today, 
Isaiah continually calling back, tells him what's going to happen, seals up his book, gives it to his disciples, and tells his disciples, listen, when the time is there, when God tells you to open the rest of this story up, then you open it up and proclaim the second half of the message. And the second half of the message is when God delivers them from Babylon. So starting last week, over, uh, not last week, the week prior, sorry, over the past several weeks, God has been saying, okay, I'm going to deliver you now. And then two weeks ago, in the chapter prior, God names their deliverer, a man named Cyrus, who is an upcoming king of Persia. He's a smaller nation, not a giant empire. He's, he's a man who is a king, but not a prominent king. And God calls out long before he's born that a man named Cyrus will liberate them. So again, this passage and the chapter before were written roughly 100 to 200 years prior to this taking place in real life, sealed up by God and set aside by Isaiah. And then Isaiah dies and his disciples carry this on. And at the right time, as God reveals to them, they open up this story and they proclaim the second half of what God had told Isaiah. Does that make sense? We're picking this up long after Isaiah's death, but these are Isaiah's writings. And it's important to the story today that you understand that God named Cyrus well over 100 years prior to Cyrus even being born. So God proclaims it to be true and then puts it away and then opens it up when the time is right and now Cyrus is coming up. So I want to read that again, starting in verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through bars of iron. A lot of the doors of bronze and, and, the, and the bars of iron, a lot of those things are said to be true of the nation Babylon. But what I want you to see mostly is not the details here, not the things that God proclaims that are true, that are nuanced and detailed and so specific to Babylon. What I want you to see is that a, a king named Cyrus will be what God calls his anointed. Now, anointed, we tend to think of as someone who is a godly person anointed for a job, maybe a pastor, an elder, a prophet, a priest, a, you know, a king, something that God is using, but they tend to be followers of God. In this case, that's not true. Cyrus never does become a follower of God, though he gives God credit for speaking to him. But he also gives credit to another God, another idol, for some of the same things. So Cyrus never becomes a godly man. Cyrus never turns from everything else and follows God. Cyrus is just chosen by God to do what God has called him to do. It says, I will take you. You're my anointed. You're my chosen. You're the one I'm going to pour out power on. I'm going to take you by the hand, Cyrus, and I'm going to, I'm going to level the path in front of you, and I'm going to cut through the doors of brass and the bars of iron. It's my power that will allow you, cause you, take you to conquer Babylon. And Cyrus does just that. Verse 3, I will give you the treasure. This is God speaking to Cyrus through Isaiah the prophet, written down ahead of time, now by his disciples. Does that all make sense? Again, God's words to Cyrus, written long before Cyrus was born. He says, I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by name. 
That treasure of darkness and hordes in secret places. Darkness, we kind of hear that and maybe we think evil or something like that. It's just saying all the hidden away treasures, I'm going to make yours. The people that have been hoarding up gold and silver and jewels, all the things that they've hidden away, I'm going to give it to you. Cyrus, I'm going to make you a wealthy man. I'm going to make you a powerful man. I'm going to give you all of this because you're going to do what I call you to do. I'm going to cause it. I have willed it. I have written it down long before you were born, and I will see it through in you. Verse 4. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know you, though you do not know me. So here's what God says to King Cyrus. I call you by name, even though you don't know me. Now, why would, why would God use someone who is not his follower? Well, why would God use someone who is a pagan king over a, 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 a pagan army, just meaning one that doesn't worship God. And he begins to answer that here. This is on behalf of his people, Israel, my servant, Jacob. I'm going to do this. I'm going to use you for the benefit of my people. He says, for the sake of my servant, Jacob, and Israel, my chosen, I call you by name. I name you, though you do not know me. I'm going to use you for my good, for my pleasure, to serve my people, though you're not one of them. God says, but I'm going to use you anyhow. The next verse, verse 5. I am the Lord, that there, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. He repeats himself. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. So not only am I going to use you, even though you don't know me, I'm going to name you ahead of time. I'm going to empower you. In fact, I'm going to make you wealthy and powerful. I'm going to use you, though you don't know me, but I'm going to use you to benefit my people. I'm going to use you to benefit Israel and Judah, the people of God. As I liberate them from Babylon, you're serving my purposes. But then he goes on and he makes it bigger. He says this, that people may know that there is none besides me, that I am the Lord and that there is no other. I'm going to use you not only to set people free here, but I'm going to do this well in advance, naming you. Though you don't know me, I'm going to write this down. I'm going to proclaim this to be true. Then I'm going to cause it to happen with well over 100 years of space in between the middle so that people may know, so that the world may know. He says, from the rising of the sun to the west, we might say this, from the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun, in other words, from east to west, or we might say, from east to west, that people might know you. He says, from the rising of the sun, from people in the east, all the way over to people on the west coast, that I'm going to make myself known through you, by using you, by naming you, by proclaiming it in advance. So if you're a note taker, again, these are all in the app, but let me just read this to you. When God causes something to happen, it doesn't always make sense to us. God uses Cyrus, a pagan king, to deliver Israel from captivity while also showing humanity that God alone is the one true God. A lot of times God does things, they don't always make sense to us. 
Sometimes you can look back and you can see what God was doing 25, 2600 years ago as Cyrus is liberating the Israelites from Babylonian captivity. And you look back and you read what God has written and you're like, okay, that's why you did it this way. But imagine you're an Israelite, captive in Babylon. Imagine you're there and Nebuchadnezzar is over you and you live in this country, not your own, and you can't go home. They have destroyed your home. Your house is no longer there. The temple you worshiped in, if you worship before that, is leveled. It's all gone. And then you hear about Cyrus. You hear this prophecy about Cyrus. And you're like, well, what? first off, who's Cyrus? Then you're like, wait a minute. That's that guy in Persia. Well, he is nobody. Wait a minute. How is some guy in Persia who doesn't even know God, how is he the solution for us? And all along, you're asking these questions because none of it makes sense while you're living your life. Sometimes, while we're living our lives, the things around us just don't make sense. Fair? The way God is doing things or not doing things in our life, sometimes just doesn't make sense. And then on the other side of them, sometimes we get the opportunity to look back and in retrospect make sense out of it. Not always. Not always in the moment, not maybe during our lifetime, but over history it will make sense. They never understood why Cyrus, other than Cyrus is going to release them to go home. Verse 7, God speaking, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. This is kind of the idea behind uh, the difference between prosperity and chaos. I'm the one that makes well-being, God says. I'm the one that causes calamity. I'm the one that gives prosperity to one, or even could be translated almost peace to one, and chaos to another. God is continuing to speak to Cyrus and to the people that will read this and hear this prophecy. And God is saying, listen, I'm the one that gives the good and the bad. I decide, me alone, I'm God. Verse 8, shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down in righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I have created it. So here we see, we kind of get a zoomed out view of what God is doing God is still speaking to Cyrus. He's proclaiming who he is. As he is proclaiming this to Cyrus, it's been written down by Isaiah. God's people are reading this. God's people are understanding, okay, this is who's going to do it. This is what's coming. Remember, Isaiah's words are put away for a while. Now it's the right time. It's in the, it's in the 500s before Jesus, like 6th century before Christ, enters into human history. It's that season and God is naming the person that's going to deliver them while they're still in Babylon. And as they hear this story, as they hear these words from God, they also hear this. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit because I, the Lord, have created it. God is saying this. This is so that the whole world will know me. This is so that the whole world can come and enter into salvation. I will give it. From the east to the west, I will open up the earth and I will bring righteousness from it. 
So this is much more than just King Cyrus and Israel. God reaches well beyond the deliverance of Israel out of Babylon by Cyrus, the Persian king, into God delivering the world out of captivity to sin through Jesus, the king of kings. God's salvation showers the whole earth, causing it to sprout. The language here is, I will grow people of faith because of this. I will shower them out across the whole world. I will cause them to sprout. Another good thing just to remember as we struggle through our lives, as we, as we endure hardships and seasons that are more challenging, we remember that it, it, it's God that grows us. It's God that nurtures us. It's, it's God that provides for us. The faith that is in us is a gift from God, and God promises to grow it in us. God promises to use us no matter how broken, no matter how jacked up we may feel. God says, you're still mine. I cause it. I use you. I use you all around the world with your next door neighbor or at your workplace or wherever you are. I use you. I cause things to grow. Not you, me. This is God reminding us of his work, of who he is. And he's doing it in some very powerful ways. Not only proclaiming a king will deliver a people from a nation, but that Jesus, the King of Kings, will come and ultimately deliver people from the power of sin and death. That the gospel will come in much the same way as God, as God foretells the future. If you go back and you listen to that, if you watch that YouTube video that, that Joe and I worked on as Joe recorded that song, O Come Emmanuel, you will hear that it's written to, a, it's written to the people here captive, that are in exile, and it's writing them with a hope that they get to look forward to. Isaiah 7, 14, the, the, word we just, the uh, verse we just read, the beginning of the Advent video, that a virgin will give birth, will have a child, and will call his name Emmanuel. That those words are spoken, and yes, it will be true for the people then, but God is pointing forward to something much more. Verse 9, God says, woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? God uses this image of striving with God, like pushing back against how God does what God does. He says, why would you strive with God? It's like a pot saying to another pot, right? Like you have no handles. He's making it a little ridiculous, a, a, little, a little kind of crazy, but he's saying, listen, when you ask God, like, why, why are you not doing it this way? Why are you doing it this way? He says, it's kind of just as ridiculous. I made you. I caused it. I use you. I have made you in such a way so that you are useful to me. You don't need to look at the other thing and go over there and go, well, why am I not that? Or why did you make me this way and not that way? Or God, why are you using Cyrus and why are you not raising up a military hero from within us so that we can fight our way out and we can have victory and can, we can move back to our home and we can be rich? And God is saying, listen, stop asking me why and start trusting in me. Maybe in our lives we need to hear that too. Stop wondering why God does things the way God does things and just start listening. 
Start believing. Start obeying. Start seeking God in a new way. Verse 11, thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and the one who formed him. Ask of me things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? So again, ask me of things to come. God is saying, listen, I have distinguished myself by being the only one who can proclaim the future and make it come true. If you're here, if you're our guest today, maybe the first time, second time, third or fourth time, maybe you haven't heard this yet. The entire book of Isaiah, much of the book of Isaiah, is God calling out God's people for their idolatry. Simple definition of idolatry is this. Anything that we have in our lives that we put in a place where only God should be. Good things, bad things. It could be our family. It could be our work. It can be our education. It could be our home. It could be anything. All good things when in the right place. It doesn't have to be a little Buddha that you bow down to or an actual idol that is made of gold or silver or wood or something, but anything, anything that we give ourselves to. We asked ourselves, just not too too long ago, like, where do you see all your time and your money go? Those will reveal your heart. Those will reveal the idols. What are the things you're willing to sacrifice for, but you don't sacrifice for God in that way? What are those things? Those are our idols. And God has been challenging the idols. So whatever yours is, whatever comes to mind for you, God has been calling out the people and saying, listen, ask your idol. Ask your idol to tell you what's going to happen tomorrow. Ask this little mute wooden idol with a mouth and ears and hands that can't do anything, that can't speak, can't hear, can't move. And he has been taunting them and saying, listen, you take your idols and then you chain them to the ground so they don't fall over. Or you take these wooden ones and you kind of nail them down so your, your idol, your God, the thing you give worship won't fall down. Like that's how sturdy what you worship is. And then he says, listen, ask your idol, in fact, what happened in the past. See if they can even do that. He says, only I can tell you the future because only I am God. God is the only one. So God uses prophecy. God uses telling people what's about to happen as a way of showing people that it's him. So this passage is all about that. And as we look at Advent, it's all about that as well. So our Advent verse today about the virgin who will give birth and who will have a son and he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Isaiah 7, 14, and then Luke 1, we get to see the fulfillment of it. But also, as we back up, God was doing something in that moment, in that day. We'll look at that in just a second. Let me read the next passage, verse 12. God says, I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded their host. God going back to, I am creator. I have stirred him up in righteousness. Now there's a hymn. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free. Not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. So if you were here when we went through Isaiah 7, we broke down how prophecy in the Bible tends to work. And it's simple. It's a lot simpler than we tend to make it. In Isaiah 7, God speaks through Isaiah to the people of God in real time. Like me sitting here talking to you today, he's talking to the people of God. Probably more broadly, 
probably through written things, probably through people that took his message out there, but in real time about things that were about to happen in their life. And God's promise through Isaiah in Isaiah 7:14 was that a virgin will conceive and bear a child. And then through Isaiah, if you keep reading chapter 7 and you move into the beginning of chapter 8, what happens is Isaiah fulfills that promise with a woman and that child becomes significant to the story, right? But it also looks forward to the birth of Christ. And so there's a prophecy, stay with me, this will make sense, I promise. There's a prophecy to people who are alive about them. It's going to happen in their life. But also, we call that like kind of the antitype, or the, anti, the, the, the first fulfillment. And then the complete fulfillment, the, the future fulfillment is fulfilled in Christ. There are literally thousands of these in the Bible. This is one of them. So we see Isaiah in Isaiah 7:14 proclaim a woman, a child, what he's going to do. Then we see him do that in Isaiah 8. That's the first fulfillment. And then we see it fulfilled completely in Christ. When a virgin, not just a virgin at the moment when Isaiah said it, but a virgin conceives without a husband and has a child, Jesus. You with me? Prophecy, fulfillment in their day. Almost everyone, every prophecy in the Bible has a fulfillment in their day. Part of this is probably why Isaiah and his prophecy had to wait until this moment when they're ready to liberate God's people. So prophecy, fulfillment in their lifetime, and then ultimate or greater or complete fulfillment in Christ. You with me? That's what Cyrus is for us today. Let's restart at verse 13. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Now, there's two things in here that are not Cyrus. Cyrus is not righteous, and he's not, not doing it for price or reward. He is doing it for price and reward. God has already said, I'm going to make you wealthy. I'm going to give you power. I'm going to cause this. God is now saying, listen, Cyrus is the first fulfillment of that. He will liberate you from Babylon, literally. He will send you back to your home, to your city, to your country. You'll begin to repopulate that. You'll begin to live that way. But he's not righteous and he's not doing it for free. This will point forward to Christ who will ultimately fulfill this. He will build my city. He will do it in righteousness, and he will do it for no cost. In fact, as we know the story, it will cost Jesus everything. You with me? Let me put two verses up on the, on the screen for you. Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says, In the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. The following verses, too long to put them all, the following verses, he begins to release the people of God to go back to Jerusalem. The first, exile, uh, first wave of returning exiles, they go back and they rebuild the temple. Then another wave of returning exiles Many, many years later, begin to rebuild homes. And then that's all the book of Ezra. 
Then the book of Nehemiah kicks in, and a third returning wave of all God's people go back, and they rebuild the walls of the city in Jerusalem. So this is going to be deliverance through Cyrus. Here's the first fulfillment. Ezra is a contemporary of Cyrus, King Cyrus, that Isaiah prophesied about. Ezra and Nehemiah is really one book in three sections, if you will. Next verse is Revelation 21. And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Ultimate fulfillment of the city of God is Jesus Christ, reigning and building his kingdom. All of Isaiah is like this. It's, it's bound up in a story about a people. And the people here are disobedient and kind of shutting God out of their lives. And as he calls them to repent, and they're going to plug their ears and just kind of cover their eyes and stiffen their neck and turn away from God, God slowly allows them to have their decisions, the, the repercussions that come from them choosing not to follow God. He allows the penalties to just come in on them. And as the pain gets to be too much, they tend to turn towards God. And so he'll allow them to repent and return and say, now listen, abandon all of that, worship me, and it'll be good. And slowly but surely, they drift back into sin, drift back into idolatry. God does it again. And when they finally don't listen, God allows a nation, in fact, God causes the nation of Babylon to conquer them. And then they cry out. And then they seek God. And after a generation, God liberates them through a king named Cyrus. This is our story too. That we as the people of God tend to wander away from God. We get caught up in our own life, caught up in our own thing. We harden our hearts to God's word. We plug our ears, we cover our eyes, and we stiffen our neck to what God is calling us to. Read passages like this and we go, oh, that's about everybody else. No, it's about us. Because really nothing has changed between them and now. The geography is different. We're here, they're there. But nothing has changed. And because of that, Cyrus is one leader in a massive history of God's people wandering in and out of him until Jesus finally fulfills all of it. Verse 14, thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over you and be yours. They shall follow you, and you shall come out over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you. There is no other God, no God besides him. As the Israelites, as the people of God move back to Jerusalem, literally Isaiah will pay them, will give them everything they need. Specifically, all the things that Nebuchadnezzar took when he conquered Jerusalem and took the Israelites into captivity in the first place, all of it goes back with them. And God says, listen, when you go back, you will take all that with you. Verse 15, truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. Let me just pause. The God who hides himself, again, is pointing to a God who reveals himself in prophecy, who also as he does so, not everything always makes sense in the moment. When you're looking at where they are and they want to be liberated in their heads, they've got a military conqueror. They've got a king rising up and defeating Babylon, but that's not what God is doing. 
Fast forward to the story of Jesus, the last week of his life, as he enters back into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. They're shouting out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're cheering him on like a military victor, like someone who's going to come and conquer Rome. Because though they're, ba- they're, they're captive in Babylon now, by the time we get to Jesus, they're back under Roman authority. Again, because of the disobedience. And so what really the people of God always want is this military hero, this rising up of a king who's going to rescue them. Sounds a lot like us during voting season, right? We're going to try and vote in our next savior on this team or on that team or on no team or whatever because we're the same, because our sins are the same, because our heart is the same, because we need Jesus, not a president. Not a king, not a military ruler. We need Jesus to change our hearts. God who hides himself is the God who doesn't always make sense in the moment, but always makes sense ultimately. Verse 15, let's read it again. Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. They may, the makers of idols go into confusion together, but Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. Jesus makes no sense, right? I know, that was a little creepy of a sentence. Bear with me. What do people want to be liberated? What kind of person are they looking for, right? Then there's Jesus, who is the ultimate fulfillment of all of this. And here he comes, born in poverty, born into a nowhere city, that really nothing good happens from. On the run for the first two years of his life. No one even knows who he is. Born to a broke family. Now let's just push pause. If we wanted to take over the world, would we do it different? Right? Love or hate Trump or Bloomberg or any of these billionaires, if we were to take over the world, we'd probably be born into a family like that. Right? Some, you guys are just not willing to agree with that one. So. Born into a family of wealth. You with me? Power. Not an obscurity. Who will go on and become an itinerant preacher who wanders around the area for three years, proclaiming the kingdom of God and being chased around by the religious elite. Who ultimately, as he accomplishes everything God has given him, does it by dying. Dying a shameful, brutal, excruciating, in fact, that word means from the cross, that painful, of a death. Most of his disciples right there will check out because none of it makes sense. And then Jesus will raise from the dead three days later, and it all starts coming together. See, Jesus makes no sense. If you want to accomplish what God promised to accomplish, and you do it in human ways, you don't do it the way God did it in Christ. Is that a fair statement? And yet God's right. True also? Because it doesn't always make sense. As we proclaim Christ to come, it doesn't always look like that's the, the easiest or best way from here to there. Verse 18 For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it, he established it. He did not create it empty, he formed it to be inhabited. 
God speaking, I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in the land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Here's what God is saying. I didn't create you and call you to follow me without you being able to. I didn't tell you to be obedient. I didn't tell you to repent without providing a way that you could do so. I may not make sense to you, God says, but it's clear what I'm saying. God is over and over saying, I reveal myself to you. You can't comprehend or grasp God. You would have to be God in order to understand God. You'd have to be equal to God to grasp or fully contain who God is. But yet God reveals himself to us. In fact, God reveals himself best to us in Christ, God in human flesh. When Jesus gets off his throne in heaven and puts on skin, we get to see God. God says, listen, I've called you to do things you may not fully understand, but you know what I'm saying, and, you, and I am revealed to you. You get to see me in this. Verse 20, assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told you this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there's no other God besides me, a righteous God and the Savior, God and Jesus being spoken about. There is none besides me. Again, why does God use prophecy to reveal himself? So that you can look at this and say, there's no other way. It's anything else other than God. I'll proclaim it ahead of time, and then I will fulfill it in exactly the right way. I will do this, and then we will accomplish it, and you'll be able to see me in it. He says, look at all your other idols. Look at all the other people that worship all the other things and ask them to do this. Do you know why Buddhism and Islam and most of the other world religions, Confucianism, Hinduism, do you know why they don't tell the future? They can't. And yet God has thousands of prophecies. This is the most highly contested book of the Bible because it was written close to 800 years before Jesus entered into human history and because it foretells the future of the Israelites from their conquering to little bits of where everything was conquered except for Jerusalem to when everything was wiped out and taken into Babylon to Cyrus delivering them all the way up to Jesus proclaiming the crucifixion and resurrection. And it does it in such detail that critics, even some that teach in Christian seminaries, were so critical of Isaiah, they said there's no way this could be written before it happened. And we've talked about this before, and the Dead Sea Scrolls found in the last century found a copy of this buried long before Jesus was born. It was also buried in a collapse in a city, in a ruin, before Cyrus conquered Babylon. God says, I tell the future so you know it's me. And then when you look and you fix your eyes on me, it may not make sense, but you know it's me. Then you follow me. A savior to come, a righteous God and a savior. Here's a note for you. God prophesied hundreds of years in advance that Cyrus would deliver Israel from Babylon, proving we could trust God for the Savior promised to come. 
Jesus fulfilled thousands of prophecies over thousands of years of history, statistically impossible. According to science and math, there's a number. When you hit that number, it's impossible. This is considered impossible. Statistically, mathematically, and scientifically impossible to fulfill all those, all those promises that anyone could ever do that, and yet God did that in Christ, achieved by God who ordains everything. Why do we look to Jesus? Why do we look to story promised ahead of time? Because it reminds us that only God could do it. So God says this, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Turn to me and be saved. Here's the message. I've delivered you, return to me. God says, I've done it in such a fashion that it can't be anyone but me. I told of it in advance, well over a hundred years in this case, hundreds, sometimes thousands of years in the prophecies about Jesus. All the way back to when God first proclaims the gospel in the garden, and he proclaims Jesus to come, all those prophecies come. And they all find their fulfillment in Christ. When we gather together throughout this Advent season, and again, if you came in late and you missed the meaning of Advent, we said it in the video, Advent literally means the coming of someone or something incredibly important. Like the advent of the internet changed the way we communicate, right? The advent of Christ, capital A, the advent season in Christianity celebrates the coming of Christ into humanity. All of that prophesied long ago so that it became impossible to do it any other way than God do it for us. And then do it in a way that makes zero sense to human eyes, to human wisdom. Wait a minute, so this broke guy with really very little following is not gonna rise up and conquer? He's gonna, he's gonna, he's gonna die? Wait, you mean his own people, the religious elite in his day, they're going to betray him and hand him off to Rome, and Rome's gonna publicly crucify him, hang him between two thieves. That's the plan. Yes. Because up until that point, pretty much anybody can die. But the resurrection changes everything. That Jesus would then raise from the dead, proving he is God. And that hundreds would see him eye to eye would see him so that they would go on and tell others as firsthand witnesses that they saw, that they saw the living Jesus. And then the disciples would go out and those very same disciples that bailed on him at the cross would go on and give their lives because they had seen him raised from the dead. No one can do this but God. And so the apostles will go on to spread the gospel around the known world. All of them will die violent deaths, joyfully proclaiming the message of Jesus. Why? Because of verse 22, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. God says turn. All are invited to turn. Before the Israelites, before God's people were taken into captivity, they were asked, called, pleaded with, loved by God to return. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, this is for you. This is turn and be saved. Turn to me, God says, and be saved. 
I rescue you, not you. I do it, and I do it through Jesus. If you're here and you haven't been walking with Jesus, you've wandered away and you've let your life be filled with other things, turn and be saved today. Turn, return, come back. That's the message. He finishes with this. By myself, verse 23, I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength to him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Those words sound familiar? Paul writes this in Philippians 2. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The message is about Jesus. God uses Cyrus, but God uses Cyrus to point to Jesus. God liberates the Jews to remind us that sin holds us captive, that we need to be liberated from the sin that we live in, and that only Jesus can do that. Let's pray. Jesus, impossible to fulfill all that you fulfilled. Impossible to be from Bethlehem and Galilee and chased over Egypt. Impossible to be rejected by everyone that knew. By those that knew scripture best, they missed you. Impossible to be born of a virgin. Impossible to raise from the dead. Jesus, everything about you is impossible, and yet you do it. You are the God who overcomes the impossible. You're the God who liberates the slave, who rescues the addict, who releases the imprisoned, who strengthens the single mom, who breaks the bondage of this world, Lord. And you do it for us. And you just say, come, turn to me and be saved because I am God. You tell it in advance so that we have no way but to be confronted with this truth. You are God. There is no other. And now it's up to us. What do we do with that? History has proven this to be true. Indisputed, Isaiah was written before Cyrus and before Jesus. Now we're confronted with a decision. What do we do with that? Do we change our lives and conform to you, God? Or do we walk away hard-hearted? I pray that you'd soften our hearts and draw us near, God. Help us to be the people that you have called us to be. Draw those that have never made a decision of faith. Let them follow you. Draw those who have wandered away. Let them follow you today. Draw those that are near to you. Let those follow deeper. Let those come nearer. And let all of us take this message out to others. I pray for those names we're writing down. I pray that we would invite them. I pray that they would come. I pray that they would know you. Help us to be obedient. 
Help us to sacrifice everything and give to you. Jesus, you sacrificed everything for us. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.